My name's Alice and uh, this episode we have Charlotte Riley back last time she told us all about sewage, sewage crisis and how complicated it was, not sewage, that'll be a whole other whole other brain train. Um, but Charlotte is interested in voting and uh, kind of the science of voting so we found a mathematician and we have Chris Good from the University of Birmingham. Um, so hello to both of you. Uh, Charlotte, Hi. do you want to start off with the, your question? Um, yeah, I, I think I'm going to find it hard to phrase exactly as a question but um, I'm really so I'm kind of a political historian and um, the kind of big election I study is the 1945 Labour landslide but I don't actually know anything about how elections work or how voting works other than the fact that we keep being told that in Britain people don't do it very much and are quite apathetic about it Um, and I also live in the borough in Tower Hamlets which took the longest to return its um, local election results it was in Bromley South and it took five extra days than anybody else to return a council vote so I'm interested really in kind of how it all works how elections if they're fair how they're fair and and why people do or don't vote so is there anything you can in there that you've you've got some notes with you I brought some notes I I looked (laughs) yeah these I looked up some uh, voter turnout uh, figures and uh, some of the reasons why voters were apathetic in the last election but I think the reason that I was asked on here was because I've looked at uh, fairness in voting from an economic, from a mathematical point of view. Uh, and there's a big theory called social welfare theory where economists look at, in a mathematical way, look at voting systems, how voting works, how you make a fair voting system, or what does it mean to be a fair voting system. Mm-hmm. Can you explain then, what, why do economists use maths for that? And um, how does it work? That's a really good question. Uh, They use maths because Mm -hmm. maths is the way that you explain uh, technical things, I think. It's the Mm -hmm. kind of language that you use. You you end up, when you're trying to understand something uh, that follows patterns and so on, you end up using mathematics to to explain it and to to work it out. So um, if you want to understand how a voting system works, why it throws up seeming anomalies and so on, well, you might one way of approaching that would be to try and model it mathematically. So you try and work out some mathematical way to explain what you mean by fairness. You try and work out some mathematical way to explain what you mean by taking everybody's ballot papers and aggregating their votes to give you a count and so on. And then once you've done that, you've got mathematical formulae and mathematical expressions. You can make arguments about them, logical arguments about them. Okay. Um, so how does the social welfare theory that you mentioned that economists use, how does that work? What do they? What does that sort of tell us? So the the reason I got into this was I heard about this result of a guy, an economist called Ken Arrows, who won the Nobel Prize in 1951. Uh, and he uh, essentially proved a theorem. I mean, in my world, it would be proving a theorem, uh, which is what I do as a pure mathematician. He proved a theorem, uh, and you can summarise that theorem saying there's no fair voting system. Uh, but to unwrap that, you need to understand what he actually proved, what did he mean by fair, what did he mean by a voting system, and so on. And so I was really intrigued by that, uh, and I was really intrigued by the, from, just from a kind of outreach um, point of view that there was some, what was essentially pure mathematics, that was really significant because it was part of the reason why Ken Arrows won the Nobel Prize, uh, but it's simple enough 
to explain to people in around about an hour and a half with a blackboard. Um, so when I started looking at this, it turns out there are lots of really interesting examples of voting, uh, just surprising things that can happen, even with, even with uh, systems of voting like our own first-past-the-post system, uh, where you cast one vote for one candidate and the person with the most votes wins. Some very odd things can happen when you, you, you can work out kind of interesting examples where strange things can happen. For example, you can run an election uh, and count everybody's votes and if one of the candidates withdraws and you recount the votes then the order of the remaining candidates is completely reversed. So that kind of suggests that our first-past-the-post system is uh, potentially problematic. So. So how does that work then? If you, so you, you you kind of remove one of the, you remove the first candidate and then it, why why does it work like that? Why does because it sounds, I mean as a historian and we're famously quite bad at using kind of data, um, but that it just doesn't sound logical to me. So how how does it work? Why does it work like that? Uh, it works like that because when you do first past the post system, you only count people's votes for the first, you only count their preferences for their first um, candidate mm -hmm. and you ignore their preferences for the others and so what can happen, you can hide underneath, so you need to know, in that example you need to know everybody's preferences, so they need to rank okay. right. they need to rank the candidates but that first person counts and then underneath that things mm -hmm. can be wildly different between, so one person can vote for Labour first and then uh, Tory and then Lib Dem and then UKIP somebody else could have a completely different okay. Uh, ranking underneath Labour first. So when you remove Labour from their vote and you look at what happens underneath, the orders are com completely different. And that's hidden by the first-past-the-post system because it only counts the top. It only counts your first preference. So if that's why first-past-the-post isn't fair, why... Why didn't say it wasn't... Well, well yeah, no, we haven't not decided why what it's... fair is. Okay, yeah, yeah. so if that's why that's problematic, historian's favourite word... Um... <laughs> that's a better word, I think. Then. Why is... Um... When we had the the referendum on deciding to have um, a different system, which doesn't just count your first preference, why is that one problematic? So what Ken Arrow proved was that uh, in any voting system where you have more than three candidates, uh, it is unfair according to his uh, three conditions of fairness. So he he wrote down three conditions of fairness. Uh, one of them is completely obvious, that is if everybody in the society votes for candidate A above candidate B, then in the outcome, candidate A should beat candidate B. Right. So we'd agree that was an idea of fairness. Second condition was rationality, so that you cannot vote for candidate A above candidate B, above candidate C, but then put candidate C above candidate A. And the outcome of the votes can't have that sort of cycle either. Okay. And then the third condition, which is the kind of slightly tricky one probably, is... Uh, independence of irrelevant alternatives. So if we vote, we all, everyone in this room, say we decide, you know, we're going to go out for a meal afterwards and we say, let's, some, we're going to vote for pizza, Chinese or Indian. Uh, the outcome between Chinese and Indian shouldn't depend on where we put pizza. So if we want to rank, our, as a group of people, we want to decide let's take these three alternatives and put them in some ranking, some social rank. This is why it's called social welfare theory. The society, our little society here, wants to put these in social ranking. So the outcome between Chinese and Indian shouldn't be affected about how I feel about pizza today or yesterday. I mean, maybe I, maybe I had pizza yesterday, don't want to 
again today mm -hmm. or maybe I didn't and I'm desperate for pizza because I haven't had pizza for ages and I've had Indian every day for the past you know three months so but that shouldn't affect where we put pizza shouldn't affect how Ch the outcome between Chinese and Indian so that's independence of, of irrelevant alternatives mm -hmm. but any voting system which satisfies those three so rationality unanimity so if we all agree that we prefer pizza to everything else pizza wins uh, and uh, independence or relevant alternatives, then it would turn out that one of us in the room is a dictator. We might not even know that we're a dictator, <laughs> but whenever we have a vote, it's always the dictator's choice that uh, determines the outcome. So it's a really strange result. Yeah. But that happens whenever you have three candidates. So, of course, it doesn't say that voting is unfair. What it says is that if you have a voting system that clearly doesn't have a dictator, say first past the post or um, any of the other voting systems that people use around the world, if, they, if there isn't a dictator then what you know is that your voting system does not satisfy one of the other conditions. So it's either not, it doesn't satisfy unanimity or it doesn't satisfy rationality or it doesn't satisfy independence of irrelevant alternatives. So what that means is that embedded in any voting system which doesn't have a dictator is some notion of what you might possibly call unfair. Right. You're looking a bit lost. I am kind of looking a bit lost. Why? I, yeah, I feel like my question now is just why? Why? <laughs> um, <laughs> why, for those three conditions to be, why? I, I didn't quite follow. Why does not have to be a dictator? It, it's it's a proof. I mean, we okay. could, you know, so if, if we if we had a, I mean, if you you know, if you gave me a blackboard and, and an hour and a half, we okay. could we could convince you that that just will happen. Okay. So, but it doesn't happen in our voting system. So that what that tells us is our voting systems don't satisfy one or more of those of those conditions that Arrow said are conditions of, of fairness. Okay. So what that really means is is that if you have a voting system, you should expect some anomalies so we can't so what he's really saying is you can't eradicate these anomalies so you will always get people saying hang on a sec this voting system isn't fair okay but then it's not really about fairness necessarily when you're picking a voting system it's about lots of other things like practicality or you know does, does it give you a government does it give you a strong government mm -hmm. you know we kind of think first past the post tends to give us stronger more stable governments whereas proportional rep representation doesn't sometimes yeah. so there are other things uh, cost might be you know lots of voting systems are extremely expensive so you might choose one that's you know it's really expensive running an election mm -hmm. so you might choose a different method because it's cheaper okay so it's not just about fairness whatever, yeah. whatever fairness wins but all's not lost because there's another theorem <laughs> May's theorem which says that if you've only got two candidates then um, actually there is a fair voting system and that fair voting system is majority rule. The candidate who gets the most votes wins. Okay, which is interesting because political historians certainly always always critique the idea of majority rule. Majority rule is always always criticised by political historians, obviously because you end up with often quite a large section of the population who end up with a candidate they haven't yeah. haven't voted for, and that's happened fairly because you know more people have voted for the other candidate, but. Or I suppose we're going to see that with in a different context with the referendum, the yes/no referendum. Um, that's a the, really nice that's example. Binary, mm -hmm. unusually, rather than and not, it's not necessarily voting for people. It's 
Yeah. I, I mean, is that have you got? Is there different? Is there data on uh, that you've looked at on on that kind of thing, or uh, where there are? I mean, are there are there many votes where the choices are two? I mean, we can think about America, I suppose, where efficient. Mm-hmm. Well, America's not though, is it? It's it, not it, officially. It, it just ends up. You know, you get yeah. um, people like Nader and so on who, who mm. just who who can skew things. Um, I mean, a lot of the times it is just two candidates essentially. Though in the American system, of course, it's it's further complicated because they have the electoral college. Yeah. So you don't yeah. really elect, vote for the president. You vote for somebody who's mm-hmm. going to take your vote and uh, cast it how they think they should cast it. Mm-hmm. I think these days they probably will cast it for the, you know, for the person that you voted for essentially. But the Scots, so the Scottish referendum is quite interesting because there are only two choices. Whereas Alex Salmond wanted more, didn't he? Because yeah. he wanted mm-hmm. yes, no, or Devo Max. I think, or something yeah, so effectively. Yeah, yeah. And Cameron said no. And probably Cameron's right now wishing there was Devo Max on mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Um, but what we can say is that, you know, if you go by May's conditions of fairness, which are that all voters are treated equally, both candidates, because we're only talking about two candidates, both candidates are treated equally, and were the winner to get even more votes, they would still be the winner. Mm-hmm. Those are his conditions of fairness, which are probably inarguable. Then we can say that this vote is a fair vote, because there are two candidates. And if they had had the Devo Max option, then it would actually be, be... three candidates. And it would be less fair. And then we could have arguments about whether, it, you know, whether the way that we counted the votes mm-hmm. truly reflected what the population, what society wanted. And maybe they'd be less likely to rip families apart. I'm just worried that my aunts are going to stop talking to each other. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I mean, these. But I suppose my aunts are an example of how you're talking about a system which seems quite abstracted, um, and fairness and things being based on quite um, kind of ideals types. Like it's not really. There are other things which would be create unf- unfairness. Like for example, in the US particular packets of money and we see ways in which super PACs are being developed to try and change and change power dynamics around oh it. yeah this I mean, is so purely this is so the, 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 the kind of science the, the social welfare theory that I've looked at is purely mathematical mm. it's looking at um, it, it is looking just at uh, how the, the kind of mechanics of the of what's going on with the voting process but there's all those other things like you know the, the, the which newspapers support which candidates and so on which clearly create other unfairnesses. So originally Charlotte was, I mean this kind of, we kind of segued into the, the kind of scientific side of it, but originally it was, um, it was sort of voter turnout and, um, and sort of voter apathy. And that's kind of interesting because I looked up some numbers and uh, it kind of started, it seems to, in this country, it seems to start in Blair, with, with Blair. So in, in the US, um, Voter turnout for presidential elections has been something like 60% since the 1960s. Mm. Uh, in 2008, uh, which was the last one, wasn't it? It was 62%, which was the highest since 1968. So that's pretty awful mm. in terms of turnout. But for us, um, prior to 97 election, so there was 71% turnout there. But then if you go all the way back to 1945... It was over seventy percent, sometimes well over. Mm-hmm. So, nineteen fifty election, Attlee getting in is eighty four percent, and then eighty three percent when Churchill got back in. Um, and then, but then, New Labour's second election, two thousand one, fifty nine percent turnout. It was a real drop, sixty one percent, and then sixty five percent at the last, at the last election. So I don't know what we'd think of uh, poor turnout would be. 
but 60% seems to be poor turnout to me. That's you know, nearly half of the population, yeah. the voting population, not bothering to um, not bothering to vote. Particularly if the majority is then so slim anyway that the actual proportion of people who voted for a government become such a small minority of the actual population as well. Yeah, so the, I looked at this survey um, by uh, Servation for Lodestone uh, and they uh, reckoned that of the non-voters in the last election, the 2010, 32% would vote for Labour, 18% for UKIP, 15% for the Conservatives and 22% don't know. So if Labour could activate those 32% mm-hmm. of non-voters of the, uh, what, 45 uh, 35%, that would be really significant in terms of, uh, you know, the outcome of the election. Ditto, and I'm sure, you know, the 15% for the Conservatives and so on, mm-hmm. which is what the Democrats did, I think, last time in the States, wasn't it? I think yeah. They, they really worked on the kind of the non-voters. Yeah, and those kind of voter drives and things yeah. like that, because if someone hands you a... A registration form, you're likely slightly more likely to vote for them than for the opposition, regardless of your party. Well, that was really interesting because they looked at these people and said, "What would make you vote in the next election?" And so, there were 24% of the people who answered said that they were. Um, it was more information on how, where to vote, how to get a postal vote, where to go to vote. So they sort of just hadn't read, understood how they could get a vote. But then, I mean, 39% said something else. So like, I don't know, or you know money or you know chocolate mm-hmm. bars or something but uh, 17% said getting a leaflet from a candidate and then another 20% said a, some sort of personal contact with a candidate mm-hmm. would be more likely to make them make them vote so theoretically that kind of door to door knocking up door to door knocking seems to be really should work yeah. um, yeah. the the atley the 45 atley election certainly lots of people um sort of thought i think that the reason labor got in was because the uh, people were still serving in the army and were kind of given uh, ballot papers within their barracks and then had them taken off them and were posted back to Britain. So it was very easy for people to do. Yeah. Which I think probably makes sense with those ideas. So is that the sort of non-voting Labour um, majority? Yeah. Yeah. Who kind of made it, made it very easy mm. for them to do it. Well, I sort of think it's clear, you know, when, you, when you've got really powerful figures like Thatcher and so on, who just split the nation, people mm-hmm. are going to vote. I mean, my, you know, I sort of think when New Labour came in, they kind of sanitised, everything had to be sanitised because it had to be controlled because the power of the media was so great Mm -hmm. that you had to just be really on message and this idea of kind of spin and being on message and so on and having a little pager so you didn't say anything wrong, uh, which has crept into a lot of society now more generally, that kind of just made everything so much more bland that kind of killed off interest, perhaps. It's going to be interesting to see what the turnout is for the Scottish um, uh, referendum, because apparently there's been people queuing up to register to vote and things, and one of the outcomes seems to be more of a re-engagement with the voting process. Yeah, that's really... um, It would be frightening, wouldn't it, if there was 60% of voter turnout. That would be sort of, you know, because it's seriously important for for all of us. But they didn't, and they... Am I right in saying they didn't actually set a minimum turnout that's required for it? So, uh, because I know for the PCC, mm. P- PCC is it the police um, yeah. ones? They didn't set a minimum turnout, so people were being elected on a kind of. They had terrible turnout. They had you yeah. know ten or fifteen percent in some places, and people were still getting elected and getting a majority of that, which is quite frightening, really. But yeah. Yeah. see, I think with because the, the other thing I was kind of interested in is this idea of sort of 
well, a voter apathy, which I think links to the perceptions of fairness as well. There's this idea that the idea either that politicians don't really respond to what people want and they just have this kind of message. But also, I mean, I grew up in Lincolnshire, which is solidly conservative, and so my parents voted kind of for the sake of voting, but I would imagine lots of people who were sympathetic to the Labour Party probably didn't bother because they knew that there was absolutely no point in voting Labour in an area that was so dominated by kind of Thatcher's politics. Yeah, I live in a rural farming area, mm-hmm. so you know, there's almost no point in... You know, there's no way that I'll ever vote Conservative, but what do I do then? Do I just go to the pub, or do I, do I go and vote <laughs> anyway, or do I vote Green or something, cause just to, as, a, as a protest? Mm-hmm. And then you're really... So that was quite interesting, because one of these... Um, you know, the reasons why people don't vote is that I'm not, I'm not represented by the parties... And then you had deal breakers. So I got really upset with the Labour government when they were talking about... Um, there were three things, I think, that really kind of... And I can't remember what they all were now. But mm-hmm. one of them was the Badger cull. And I was kind of completely opposed to the Badger cull. So I thought, oh, I'm not going to vote Labour. So who do I vote for now? Well, I'm gonna, I'll move to Brighton and vote for the Green Party or something. <laughs> sort of See, I knew Badgers had had an impact on the election earlier than just, you know, recently. I got teased for saying that badges were an election issue at the last election, and they totally <laughs> were, and they've just grown ever since. Anyway, um, Charlotte, do you have any further, any final questions to sort of like dig into this or move back to the the larger theory? Or I think I mean I'm interested in um, the idea that these economists are using these kind of mathematical models to think about this quite abstract idea of fairness, um, um, whether they think that people have this perception of. Do, the people who kind of have these theories, what, how do they think that the general public perceive those ideas? Because I remember around the referendum for AV, then there was this idea of, did you think AV was fairer than first past the post? Does that sort of sense of, not necessarily whether they think it's fair, but what they think the general public would do with this information? I think there was a whole debate there that didn't happen in public about how you can analyse... Well, why choose AV rather than some other... Mm-hmm. some other count, some other way of uh, counting the votes. Uh, and we didn't have that. I don't know why we chose AV. I mean, I'm sure there were some re- some reasons for it, and mm-hmm. it, it might be that the other ways of counting the votes are just too expensive or too complicated. Mm-hmm. In, and you, you know, however you do the voting, you, it's got to be something that people can understand quite you know, relatively easily. Yeah. Otherwise, th- then that's not fair because people just don't understand what they're, they're doing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm sure, I mean, a lot of the, what motivates... The research there is to is to try and understand what to what degree uh, your voting system does reflect what the voters want mm-hmm. and how how it, in in what way does it reflect them and just just to be aware that it that there might be these problems. Yeah. Do you think um, maths a bit more um, engagement from the mathematicians or the economists using maths would would help in that debate a bit more? Um, do you think it would have helped con- contribute to a larger... Well, I seem to confuse event? Charlotte when I started talking about it, so... <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't get a bit lost if I can't... Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we need more blackboards. Yeah, yeah, exactly, I need a blackboard to kind yeah. of scribble some things on. That's the, but maybe that's yeah. what we need in the I don't know, House Commons or something. <laughs> Less political leaflets with dodgy statistics and, mm-hmm. and more uh, blackboards, maybe. Um, yeah, so exactly. our final question that we would ask our guests... Um, is do they have a question for their own field? So it, you, you know, this isn't your own research. So it could be that you have a question of these people that you've looked at, or it could be for your own field. It could be an intellectual question. It could be more of a political one. What, what's a question that you'd ask yourself or your, your colleagues? Uh, 
Okay, so there are lots of kind of very specific, nerdy, pure mass questions that I'd like to ask yeah. uh, my colleagues or kind of the universe to see answers to. You know, I'd love to see a locally compact first countable Dalka space in ZFC. Um, but actually, <laughs> but actually, I think the, qu- the thing what I'd really like to ask to get mathematicians to do is talk to the public you know, um, more so that we stop this kind of fear of mathematical ideas and so on. Because to me, I think it's... I think people leave school thinking that they should understand mathematics and there's no reason for them to understand mathematics because what I do, essentially, I use very specific technical language in a very specific technical way. If I said I was a um, sinologist, you wouldn't say, oh, I, I never understood Chinese, I'm no good at Chinese. you just say, well, I didn't ever learn Chinese. Mm-hmm. And I think mathematics is the same thing. I'd like to kind of... I'd like, I'd, actually, I'd like for people to be more relaxed about whether they can or can't do mathematics. It's just I'm, I've trained really hard in one particular very nerdy subject. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, so you're a reader, or just like, you know, we've all got expertise in other things. Yeah. Um, which I guess is kind of partly what our podcast is based on um, so thank you both for coming in and uh, next time we'll be back with Chris and he'll have to come up and think of something new that he wants to find out about whether it be public engagement with maths or um, that Z thing that you talked about or um, a tree or anything else <laughs> thank you